Hey, Austin, did you know that Joel Schumacher once made a good film? A Batman movie, right? Uh, No, it's not a Batman movie, actually, shockingly enough. Um, It's a movie about Vietnam, because what do you think of when you think of Joel Schumacher? You think gaudy, bat nipples, uh, (laughs) melodrama, and lots of opportunity for toy merchandise. So what makes more sense than a movie about people training to go get killed in Vietnam? (laughs) Let's talk about Tigerland. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Kier Sue, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who has not bothered to write down anything to say at this point in time, so I'm merely doing that thing where I point out the fact that I have got nothing to say because I'm too lazy to come up with something to say. Austin. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., and I'm, about, I'm all about improv, man. It's about the moment. It's about... It's off the dome, man. It's, it's all about being off the dome. <laughs> off the dome. <laughs> Well, it's like it's like I do I do a thing each week where I film like this um, this open mic for uh, Fubar Radio, and um, you know it's it's always that thing where you, you see the guys who they kind of like they're kind of going off the dome and you're like that's fucking cool and then you see the guys who are like reading off of their phones like the lyrics they've already come up with and you're kind of <laughs> like it just doesn't seem as cool man yeah I know did like, you did you, so- did you hear Black Thoughts rap that everyone was fucking freaking out about his freestyle. No, no, no. So uh, Black Thought from The Roots, he did a uh, uh, a freestyle. It's like 10 or 11 minutes long or something like that. And everybody just was like freaking the fuck out because, you know, this is 10 minutes of him just like spitting yeah. off the top of his head like the most insane lyrics ever. So that's just not my thing, man. But I can talk and bullshit. I can do that. I just can't rhyme. Is that okay? Well, I will say, I will say, when I was filming an interview with uh, Juice Crew, uh, Craig G was very underwhelmed by the idea of people who write everything down before they come to a battle. Apparently, Jay Z just used to flow uh, in the studio, right? And just exactly, because yeah, I mean, what the fuck not? So you know, so so you know, you might as well not show up unless you unless you're as good as Jay Z or Big Daddy Kane. You might as well not show up. Exactly. So basically, what we're saying is we are at the level of Big Daddy Kane, Black Thought, and Jay Z. Like that's that's what, exactly yeah, that's but what, for but for film podcasts, exactly <laughs> we are the Jay Z of film podcasts. Yeah. Done, yeah, done. Okay, so this week we are talking about Joel Schumacher's Tigerland. We're still in the prereq phase because so hopefully 2018 the apocalypse hasn't happened yet, and you are still capable of listening to this podcast. Uh, you will hear us again <sighs> talking live in February. Yes, yes. So. In the meantime, let's talk about Tigerland. Welcome to Tigerland. This will be your final week of training before you are shipped overseas. Maybe some of you have heard that we've lost this war. Well, gentlemen, it's too damn late to ask those questions. All that matters now is that you practice how to stay alive. Private Boz is now demonstrating the proper way to dig a hole under fire. Under fire, you will dig a hole and you will dig it with your teeth if you have to. Do it, eat dirt! You were a dress sergeant. <laughs> they came down pretty hard on you back in company. I was surprised they let you off base. I didn't. Well, you're AWOL? Shh, man, the children. <laughs> Been in the army more than three months. Most of it in the stockade. Let me give you some army buddy advice. Figure out a way to get out. How's your plan a fool who's fighting the system? All right, the whole damn squad does the airborne shuffle six miles back to base. You underestimate the damage that an individual like Boz can do. <laughs> Fellas say that if you don't want to go to Nam, you better pray to Jesus or talk to Roland Boz. Look, I'll get you out of the army. 
You're a hardship discharge, man, if I ever I saw one. That's Boz, sir. Got Cantwell out, two of the guys that squad he was in. You want me to fiddle around with one smart Alec trainee? I think he's something more, sir. Now, over there, you go from living the dead awful quick. That what I'm trying to teach you may save your worthless life, maybe. So you really can shoot when you want to. When I want to? I know you can get people out. Please, boss. Please get me out of here. He saved his life. If any of you are going to run off and hide, you let me know. You can't do this, boss. Hate your army. Stay down. Stay down. When you're being a fool and move out, they move out. The M60s were firing directly across our path. They would have cut us in two. I said, here we go. We're going to break those legs and get out of the war. You are a coward. Okay, one. You are a born leader, and you're afraid to take any real responsibility. Two. Well, I don't need war to tell me that, sir. Three. Was that the count? That was the count. We should have jumped. Yeah. I believe you could soldier as well as any man in this army, but you won't. You're trying to make me a hero. So, uh, Tigerland is the name given to, well, was the name of a training facility where uh, young men who were training to go to Vietnam. It's basically is the last stop before going, being shipped over to Vietnam. And the idea was it was the, cl- it was in Louisiana and it was the closest that they could make it to being like what the actual experience of Vietnam was mm-hmm. over there. So uh, the film sort of is basically the main character is a guy played by Matthew Davis. Um, Who's a kind of in a, in a, in your sort of cliche war drama way is a, is an aspiring writer. Is he the main he's character? Guy, he's he's technically the main character because he's kind of like I think he's like the he's the narrator. The, well, he's well, I think he's kind of the audience point of view essentially. Okay, okay. So I suppose you could really the film is concerned with Private Roland Boz, played by everyone's favorite crazy Irishman <laughs> Colin Firth. Colin, Colin Farrell, Colin Farrell. What am I talking about? Not Colin Firth, Colin Farrell. Definitely not Colin Firth. Definitely not Colin Firth. Um, but anyway, Colin Farrell in his, probably at the stage of his life where he was most drunk and most crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can see that. I feel like... But this is kind of like, that, you know, this is kind of his, his, his debut. This is kind of the thing that, I think he'd been on like some Irish TV programs. Okay. But like, the big thing about this movie was it was kind of low budget and the idea was like, for a film that actually has a very recognizable cast, this film was not the kind of the whole point of this film was it was kind of casting unknowns. Okay, yeah, it, well, and, and maybe they were unknown at the time, but I feel like you recognize every single fucking oh, person, yeah. you know? Oh yeah, and we'll, we'll get into this certainly, but like these were not like a lot of kind of these these were not big names. This film doesn't really have like a big name in it. Mm, at least right. two thousand, they weren't. A okay, big name. yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um. Colin, Colin Farrell is this guy who's kind of famous for being able to get people out of going to Vietnam. Like he has – he's from – he's a sort of mysterious figure. He's from Texas. You don't really know too much about him. But he seems to have a very good grasp of the legal system and how the bureaucratic system of the American armed forces works and kind of knows how to get people out of combat on technicalities. Now – the again, the film really revolves around him and his relationship to Matthew Davis, uh, Private Paxton, who is a who you get the feeling is probably from a slightly more middle class, well to do family, mm. um, wants to be a writer and has enlisted in the army because he kind of sees it. He's he's got some kind of 
muddled up kind of ideas. Sometimes he kind of says, well, you know, it was my duty to go. Like, I felt like, you know, I don't even like the war, but, you know, but, you know, I feel like why should just the poor kids go off to fight? Mm. It's actually not too dissimilar from the setup of Charlie Sheen's character in Platoon. Mm. Um, yeah, he says at one like, point that, like, if he were to, to get removed, then he just knows that somebody else would take his place. And if that person dies, then that's his responsibility. Right, right. You know? and, and it's really uh, important for people to listen, especially for people who aren't Americans. And then even if you are American, to be reminded that this is the era of the draft. So, yeah. so we're talking about you know thousands and thousands and thousands of young men who were drafted for military service. So the reason that Boz has become like this mystical kind of figure in a way is that he's able to get people uh, who were kind of forced into this out of it to get back home to their families or whatever. Well, and so we're kind of introduced to Boz as a troublemaker. He's um, – I can't remember what he's done at the beginning. But he's done something where they're not too happy well, with him. Well, and, we're introduced to him when he's just getting out of custody. Like he was thrown in yeah. the brig and they're saying if you do that shit again, then you're going to be court-martialed or something like that. So we're yeah, immediately yeah. introduced to him as already being a troublemaker. And he gets on – he's got a shit-eating grin on his face the whole oh, the time. whole time. It's only the way that Colin Farrell has like the perfect shit-eating grin. Yeah, and like that, you have all of these, these military officers who are – yelling at these these new recruits to like run and get on the on the truck and stuff like that and he just like saunters over and he doesn't really care and and you can tell that he is not in any way intimidated by their power and it's and it's it's interesting too because he definitely you know matthew davis definitely like notices him i mean do you think matthew davis is maybe a little bit thirsty Maybe. I didn't notice that. I mean, I feel like anytime you have a movie that's extremely man-centric, there's always like a little bit of homoeroticism, but I didn't There's think definitely that. a little – well, also, it's a Joel Schumacher movie, so there's definitely going to be some homoeroticism. Yeah, there's some sweaty dudes sleeping in close quarters, getting there's high together. There's that, there's that bit where Colin Firth's got to wash the dirt off himself. You, you really want Colin Firth shower. to be in this movie, don't you? It's Colin Farrell. Why the fuck do I keep saying that? Yeah, sorry. Uh, Colin Farrell's got to wash the dirt off himself. Uh, so he's like just standing around, start naked yeah. in the showers. And the shot, the camera shot is framed in such a way that it's not like yeah. it isn't cut off at the torso. It cuts off like right above the pelvis. Like, yeah, you know, you know that he's got he's, he's hanging free dick out there. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, but and, and you know, and look, but let's put it this way. This is not this Top Gun. This is not. No, no like, not at all. This is not a bunch of shirtless men eyeing each other up or anything. like no, that. No, I mean, this is, this is very gritty. You know, it, yeah. it is very gritty and it's very authentic. I mean, and it's shot in 16 millimeter, which I actually texted you. I had never seen this movie, but I texted you and I said, oh, my God, I love it because it sets that up immediately that you get that sort of more documentary style feel. As soon well, it has as- a very tactile feel to it where the funny thing is it doesn't feel like you're watching a period film. It feels very much real exactly you know exactly yeah it feels like footage that they fucking yeah. found or something yeah. it's not like an overproduction designed idea of like the early 70s no. it feels no. very much like and i'm not actually sure because i think it's was it 1971 it's set in so like the vietnam war has been going on for a while at this point right right i don't yeah. remember the exact year but i know because they talk about people who had just gotten back and one of the guys later on is it kodo or kato they've done well the, the Coda, i mean Coda. later on he said that he's done two tours of duty over there that's so he's right definitely yeah it has to have at least been enough time for there to have been two tours of duty. And at the same um, time, this also takes oh, place. Oh, sorry. I just looked it up. It is 1971. Yeah. And it also takes place in a time period when the American people were 
starting to not maybe not even starting to but we're in full swing in their opposition against the vietnam war yeah you you really do feel that this is a culture that's very sick of the war has very become very has lost a lot of kind of optimism and a lot of kind of uh support for um what's going on over there and just wants the war to end exactly um but anyway so colin colin farrell and um sorry i'm just gonna maybe use their character yeah use the character so boz so boz because it's a good name it's a great name yeah which is also because, like, Boz is also a character in um, in Halt and Catch Fire who is also a Texan. So I don't know if there's a thing. Huh. I should know this because, like, I'm from a Texas background. But, you know, I don't know if Boz is, like, a nickname in Texas mm. or something like that. But anyway, so Boz a- ends up hanging – like, him and uh, him and Paxton, they end up meeting up in, you know, in a bar – in um, on while they're kind of away, you know, and you know, of course, Matthews, Matt, yeah, sorry, uh, Paxton goes up to him because he's thirsty as fuck, and um, <laughs> and Boz is in the middle of chatting up these two these two girls who um are they hookers? No, 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 they're not hookers. No. They're just but they seem they seem very excited about the idea of getting to go bang Boz in a hotel room. I mean, somewhere. wouldn't you be excited? So they're also thirsty. There's just a lot, <laughs> of, thirst. a lot of thirst. This is, you know, a, a real lack of water around and everyone's just really <laughs> thirsty. Anyway, um, so um, basically Paxton tries to approach him with this whole kind of like, I don't know, he's kind of like attitude about being like the, you know, I, 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 I get it, man. And, you know, we're all in this together. And Boz, and Boz just kind of keeps like shutting him down, being like, you're kind of being a dumbass and, you know, whatever and all of this kind of. And then and at first Paxton and then Paxton's kind of like, well, fuck you. He's going to walk off. And Boz is like, hey, man, don't you want to come bang these two girls with me in a hotel room? Yeah, somewhere? yeah. I love that that scene because it's like you think that, oh, pa- Paxton comes over to try to bro up with with yeah, boss yeah. and boss is like he, he has like the wrong he's the wrong because he's again you kind of feel like paxton's kind of like i get this guy he's kind of like he's a rebel without a cause i'm gonna kind of like we're, I'm, we're, we're gonna connect on this and boss is like i fucking see you man i see what yeah i see what you're trying and then he's to like do, in any of this buddy buddy military bullshit stuff he's like i'm not into that like anything yeah. that any other war film valorizes like fraternity and like yeah. fidelity to your country boss is against all of that yeah, and it's like because even like after they have like sex with the two girls, and they're just kind of hanging out in the hotel room. I think they're smoking weed, yeah. and they're just kind of like just kind of hanging out in the hotel room. Uh, and he and he kind of goes to him. He goes like, "What what the fuck are you, Sergeant Rock from Easy Company?" And then and then like um, Paxton goes, "Well, what are you, an insane, an ins- uh, you know, the the only sensible man in an insane world, or something like that?" Right. You know, it's it's and you know again like they there is an element to which they they understand these war cliches, and which makes sense because to a certain extent there was this whole element culturally with Vietnam where Vietnam was this kind of um, pushback on a lot of the elements that had been valorized from World War II. Mm. So a lot of these guys, they'd grown up with their fathers having gone to, to World War II. And World War II is this idea of this um, justified, valiant effort to, you know, destroy evil in the world. And, and then they're kind of left in this much more muddied and... Um, these these much more abstract political concepts where you know especially at this point in the Vietnam War where it'd been raging for a cu- for a lot of years and people kind of go like why are we there anymore like mm. what 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 is the purpose of this mm. um, yeah and it's so I think you are seeing, sort of seeing some sort of cultural pushback on that this these ideas of these guys trying to actually rationalize like why are we doing this anymore because these aren't like this isn't the first wave these aren't the guys who are all kind of like we're gonna go destroy communism mm. and fix the world and America. Ooh, 
hoorah, you know, this is kind of the second wave or the third wave, really, of guys who are kind of like, why the fuck are we still doing this? Mm. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, they, 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 they form a bond anyway, like hanging out naked in the hotel room, smoking weed. That'll do it. Because, you know, because Joel Schumacher, <laughs> he loves himself some naked dudes. I get you, man. Um, so, uh, we go back, start the training and, um, basically we start, get introduced to a bunch of incidental characters. Well, not incidental, but kind of characters within, uh, the regiment you have, um, you have Clifton Collins Jr. Who's a great actor. I love Chris Clifton Collins Jr. Um, who is, uh, made the, the platoon guy whose job is basically, he's kind of in charge of the, the recruities. He's like the, the head, the head, um, uh, private at in the um, in the sort of the training regiment, right. um, but he's this kind of guy who really is trying to like he takes it all very seriously and is trying to like show himself as kind of like being in charge mm-hmm. and being the kind of like being being a good soldier. And Boz just doesn't take any of this shit seriously. No. And if, so this, and then you also then have my man Shea Wiggum, who I love me some Shea Wiggum. He's good. I hate and him. I hate is, him in this movie, but he's good. But this is like this is where I know Shea Wiggum from. Like for years, I'd be like, "Oh, it's that dude from Tigerland." Yeah, and he, so he's uh, Private Wilson. Private Wilson, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, and he, God, he is, uh, he is just a despicable fucking character, isn't he? Oh, yeah, man. And he basically he is a guy who really has kind of joined the military because he's fucking insane, and, yeah, and he's know, got like that yeah. machismo insanity too. Yeah. But also he's a guy who's really quick to trigger in terms of his own insecurities. So – and he sees himself as like he's going to be like the ultimate soldier, like the ultimate badass. And that – and he hates Boz because Boz doesn't take any of it seriously. Um, So immediately – so the film kind of very quickly sets up all of these kind of various dynamics in which these characters don't get on with each other. And Boz also shows himself as being someone who's really – quick to try and stick up for people who are being shit on. Mm. So you have the other private who is like this dumb as pig shit guy from like Appalachia Mm. or somewhere, somewhere like that, who is basically, um, who, uh, at one point, um, they're doing kind of like this, uh, on the gun range and he can't hit a damn thing. And he's being made fun of by Shea Wiggum or Private Wilson. And Boz just kind of steps up and kind of uh, looks after him, but kind of does it in this kind of prankish way, too, mm. where he essentially switches the um, switches the, the targets yeah. so that it looks like Wilson didn't hit anything. <laughs> yeah. um, and then, you know, and then they get into this whole thing where because, of course, like the thing is, that the, and I think that's the interesting thing is you get this feeling all the way through that Boz understands how the structure works. Mm. So he knows that when the guy comes up and is going to be like reaming on everybody he's going to be far more concerned about the chaos than he is about trying to sort out whose target was whose right. so then it kind of like so then it turns into one of this whole thing where you're you're all dead because you couldn't hit your targets and all of this sort of thing mm-hmm. and so and you know and so then basically what ends up transpiring is that um i can't remember how it happens because i did actually watch this movie a week ago i didn't i didn't watch it like a couple of days ago yeah but um boz um, Paxton and the the kind of like the the dumbest pig shit guy. They all kind of end up peeling potatoes, which is the the classic army punishment, right? Yeah, and which the point the guy kind of sort of reveals that he's from this kind of really really poor background. And he's got like a wife he, back home, right? 
Yeah, he's got a wife and kids back yeah, home. Yeah, yeah. And he he's young. Really graduate. He's like fucking 19 years old. And yeah, he didn't graduate. All. He is. And I think, again, the films, this is the perfect example of the sort of people that we happily send off to die for us because right. he is he has no power. He has no agency or anything within the world. He is purely machine gun fodder. He's also mm. somebody who's never going to do well in the military. Mm. He's never going to be someone who's going to reach a rank. He is the epitome of what the army looks at as meat for the grinder. Mm. Um, and he, and, and like boss takes pity on him and says like, look, you are a hardship transfer. I can tell you all the things that you need to say to these people in order to, um, in order to get out because he's also said that, um, that he tried to bring this up to the recruitment people. And they said, Oh, you have to wait till you're over in Vietnam before you can bring this up, which is of course their way of kind of essentially tricking him into staying in the army. And so, Boz basically like sets him up with all the legal jargon he needs to say to regurgitate mm-hmm. so the army can't keep him in. And so when he goes into the office, the guy's kind of the, the the guy who's in charge of the base kind of says, uh, that's not gonna happen. You need to wait to bring it up with your commanding officers once you're over there. And he's like, No, under section whatever or something, I can do this and I can request this. And he's just looking at him like Son, where did you where where did you learn these words? And you yeah, know, and he's like, he's he's like, like yeah, he even asks him. He's like, what? Like, how far did you get in school? And he said, like, sixth grade or something like that. And then they even say, like, oh, you know, private. This has clearly got private Boz written all over it. Boz must have given well, these well, words. What he says is, and he's oh, like, I guess and he's like, no, early where you come from. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So they know that Boz is behind this. Boz at this point, he's already gotten in trouble. We're introduced to him when he's he's in the brig and he's being thrown out. Then he has a punishment where they're having him do push-ups and shit like that and eat dirt and he's still mocking the the like the drill sergeants and the commanding officers while he's being punished. Which he doesn't is, he doesn't care. Like they beat him up and punch him and punish him and he's still laughing and like flipping Which is interesting cuz actually he's kind of like Have you ever seen Cool Hand Luke? Oh yeah. It really reminded me of Cool Hand Luke. That's a good – uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's like – it was interesting because I've always thought this when I watched something like Full Metal Jacket and stuff like that. Is that there's that little part of me that's always like I would be terrible at this because I – there's that little part of me that would always go, why? Why do I need to do that? Well, and the like, thing is, is you would say why and then they would say because we're going to punish you if you don't. And then Boz's reaction is that, okay, but your threats of punishment don't mean anything to me. They have yeah. no power. What can you do? You're not going to kill me. And there is at one point, one of the drill sergeants even says that. I, if you don't do this, I'm going to kill you. And he looks at me and says, you're not going to kill me. And He's like, he's like I don't know what you're going to do to me, but you're not going to kill me. Yeah. And he oh, knows. Wait, wait, wait. Of course, too. And we also forgot to say, too, that there's that little bit where Boz shows up, the, the sort of the bald dude, the bald like drill instructor, and, the, um, and then the, the guy who's the simple guy, he kind of he, – he, he starts making fun of him, too, because it's like he's been emboldened by Boz. Boz's like show of disdain for him to like to, to do this. And then the drill instructor, when the guy is like alone, right. beats the shit out of him. Yeah, that's right. And again, it's that because it's like he can't beat the shit out of Boz because he's kind of scared of Boz. Mm. But he can beat up this guy because he knows that he can. So yeah. it's like he's taken all of his rage out on on him. And that's kind of one of the other things that really emboldens Boz to really look after this kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So then the guy gets shipped off the base, right? He gets sent home. Yeah. He gets shipped off the base. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so then you have this whole scene. Well, I don't know if I'm skipping because this it's a very episodic film. Yeah. So I'm probably skipping some stuff here, but there's basically then there's the point, there's the demonstration with 
Michael Shen. No, okay. We have the whole thing to where um, where Shea Wiggum basically confronts Boss in the shower and is basically like. Um, I don't like. He's probably a little bit thirsty too, but he's so angry <laughs> that he's kind of like trying to he's trying to tamp down that thirst. That's right. Um, but he's he's uh, he's basically like you know I don't like I don't like your the, the cut of your jib or whatever. And like clearly, um, Shea Wiggum really wants to be like the platoon guy. He wants to be like mm. the dude in charge of everybody. And his kind of thing is like I'm going to show you up, Boz. And Boz is like I don't fucking care. Like what yeah. what, 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 what the fuck do I care? Um, but anyway. Um, point is you then get to this period where there's been a lot of pressure put on Clifton Collins Jr. to essentially bring Boz in line. So there's this real kind of like butting heads element to with the two of them. Right. And this kind of comes to a head during the sequence where essentially Michael Shannon, yes, the Michael Shannon. When he's like uh, fucking up, 20 years old. Shows it. Actually, no, he's not. Because like he's like in Groundhog Day in like 1991 when he's oh, like that's, tw- that's when he's right. 20 years old. He's he like is. 30 in this. He is. He's the WrestleMania guy in Groundhog yeah, yeah, Day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So like this is like like because Michael Shannon and it was like weird because I remember like Michael Shannon's one of these guys who's popped up in small roles enough that I kind of recognized his face at this point, mm. but I didn't know like he was like Michael Shannon, if right, you know right. what I mean. Of course. But so Michael Shannon shows up for five minutes as uh, a sergeant who's basically demonstrating how to ascertain information from a Viet Cong through torture. Right. So it's like this little kind of thing where you 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 soup up like a, a radio so that it'll basically give an electric well, current. It's, it's a that, battery. It's a battery, sorry. Yeah, yeah. A battery so that you can get a so that you can um, fry Charlie's balls, yeah. uh, and uh, he'll tell you whatever he whatever you want. Right. Um, and so basically, Boz just kind of rejects this and goes, "Why the fuck would I want to do that to another human being?" And just walks off. And uh, Clifton Collins Jr. or Private Mitre, uh, he he um, basically Mike Shannon goes like. What are you doing, platoon guy? That's your guy. Go get him. And so Miter goes off to try and get Boz. And Boz is like, fuck no, I'm not coming back. I'm not dealing with this shit. And so uh, so Miter goes back, at which point, um, uh, you know, Michael Shannon goes, well, it's your ass because you didn't go get your guy. So um, tells him to kind of like take down his trousers and he's going to like fucking fry his balls. Drop trousers. To demonstrate. He says. Drop trowel, yeah, exactly. Um, at which point he then kind of embarrasses Miter because he doesn't do it, but it's kind of like this idea of like like showing him be a pussy because like he's like he's gonna go do it. Miter like sort of squeals and he goes like didn't even touch his son, you know. Yeah. And this is kind of the point where basically his role as platoon guy is fucking dead. They've yeah. like sort of um, they, he's been shown up. He's been you know and yeah. So um, and. This is where um, he's kind of he kind of has a bit of a breakdown, and essentially he boss kind of finds him in the bathroom, looking to try and break his own. Well, no, Wait, no, 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 no. First, Sorry. first, uh, you, you've got to talk about the bit where Boz then becomes the platoon leader. No, so, no, but he becomes the. Does he become the platoon guy? Yeah, he becomes. After? Yeah, and oh, the reason. No, no, because they have the bit with a live. There's there's a there's an exercise with live ammunition where um, Miter gets they're they're doing and Miter gets confused, tells them to get out of the hole, and and uh, Boz is like, no, it's dangerous. Don't stay down, stay down. And the problem is everybody's listening to Boz. Nobody's listening to Miter. Right. So 
the drill instructors come out and go like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Why are you listening to this asshole? What, what the fuck's gone wrong, Miter? Why aren't you, why are why can't you put your, get your platoon in gear? And like, so, and Miter keeps going like, come on, get up, get up. And boss keeps going, stay down, stay down. And everyone's just like, nobody's moving. Cause like boss hasn't given the okay yet. Yeah. And so that's the point where boss kind of just like, you know, goes, fuck this, walks off. And that's the point where you have, um, the, um, the drill instructor go, you know, you don't shape up. I'm going to, I'm going to fucking kill you. And, and boss like, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're not going to kill him. He just walks off. And then you have the drill instructor. who's an actor. I don't know what his name is, but he's got a really good face. Mm-hmm. Um, and he comes out and they, they have like, and they're kind of behind the trees. And they just have this quiet moment where he's just like, Hey, hey you know, boss is kind of like, you know, just like, let's just talk like people for a second. Like let's, you know, and he gives him, he gives him a cigarette and they have a chat for a second. Meanwhile, miter is getting the shit ripped out of him by the other instructors who are basically like, and that's how he kind of loses the platoon guy kind of thing. Thing. Right. Um, at which point, what is the thing that gets him arrested? Because he gets arrested at that point. Who boss does? No, 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 Mitre. Because like he gets like he gets in trouble. Oh, does he run off or something? Well, rem- no, that's that's the bit that you're talking about when he's in when they're in the bunk, right? No, but that's after he's been arrested. God, I don't remember what he did because he's he's going to be court-martialed or something for something or. Fuck, I don't remember. But any, I mean, it's not it's not essential to the plot. Um, but yeah. But basically, yeah. Again. But it is it is it is it is essential in the sense that Miter has basically fallen to the lowest point. Yeah. Where he can't. He's no longer. Um, he's not in the army really anymore. Everything's sort of like. Probably what will happen is he'll be like. I mean, I think probably what what they sort of suggest is that he's not going to be he's lost his platoon guy sort of status and he'll probably be um, he'll probably be shipped off and used as sort of like cannon fodder or whatnot. You know, he's kind of like or like he's going to have to deal with some sort of military tribunal because essentially, do you remember there's that whole bit where they're in the bunk and this is after Boz has had the whole chat with kind of the the guy who's in charge of the platoon and um, they kind of like and he's kind of the guy kind of says like, look, I know you can soldier. So, you Mm. know, I just need you to ship up and, you know, not give us so so much shit and just soldier like I know you can, you know, and it's kind of like and they have like this kind of heart to heart chat. So then they're in the bunk and um uh and Miter's lost his platoon guy status and then he kind of goes to Wilson he's like Wilson and Wilson of course thinks at that point that they're going to make him like the new platoon guy mm. but then he goes like go get a card table and set it up by in, in front to like uh you're on so, duty. And, yeah. and stand guard yeah, oh, you're, because you're of course then they go up to Paxton and they go like, "Hey Paxton, you've um, you're you're a college boy, right? Uh, you know why? Uh, you know you're the new platoon guy." And he, and he goes like, "I want now. I want you to put this man under. I want you to put Miter under arrest." And he goes like, "Well, sir, how how do I do that?" And he goes like, "He's like, he's like, I thought you were a college boy." He goes, "They didn't teach us that in college, sir." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they, they so they put Private Wilson at guard because they know that people can like would want to escape. So yeah. the weird thing is, is that uh, that drill sergeant that has that nice sort of intimate moment with um with Boz in in the uh, in the battle or not in the battlefield, but the training field. Um, yeah. it's almost like he gives. Boz the leadership role not because Boz has earned it for being an exemplary recruit or an exemplary private but because he realizes that the people listen to him that the rest of the soldiers listen to him they follow him he's kind of like a natural leader and also I think he kind of thinks that if I give him this responsibility he'll like rise to the occasion yeah I think so and I think it I mean it makes sense because again you you saw in the previous scene how much the platoon does listen to him and how much respect he actually commands and so 
What then transpires is Miter essentially has a huge breakdown at this point. Yep. And he essentially goes through the bathroom, is trying to break his own hand with the window. And basically his thing is like, oh, if I break my hand, the army will, I'll, I'll be out of the army. And, um, and Boz is kind of like, you think like a broken hand is going to stop them from sending you over. That's, that's, that's ridiculous. And I mean, and he's got a point because at this point in it too, America needs bodies. Yep. And, you know, and that's one of the things that we've kind of grown out of as a, as a, um, within sort of military action is that we no longer are just looking for bodies anymore. It's not, we're not trying to overwhelm people with numbers. Uh, you know, we've become very tech obsessed within yeah. the modern military, but at this point, there was still an importance in the notion of how many bodies you could send over there. Right. And so he's kind of like broken hands, not going to do you anything, man. So he then, um, he then is basically then Miter reveals his own sort of sob story about how he's essentially a guy who just wanted to be a butcher and mm-hmm. how he has uh, a wife who, you know, he's again, he's from a really small town. He had like, he was married to like the prettiest girl in school. And clearly this kind of like simple life was not something that interested her. And she was kind of fooling around on him outside. Mm-hmm. So he sort of went, he was so kind of like humiliated that he joined the army basically to get away from this kind of this this town and this humiliation and you know and that's kind of like where uh so boz basically agrees to help miter and gives him a kind of loophole as to how to get out of the army due to psychological problems right um so yeah so at which point uh you know again miter is out due yeah to so his... he gets out and then of course you have the officers who are now even more pissed at boz because now he's gotten two of their recruits sent home and he's kind of viewed from their perspective as sort of a, a cancer that's eating eating the platoon from the inside. So they they God do. man, we haven't even we haven't even gotten to fucking Tigerland yet. Well it's weird thing is is Tigerland doesn't happen until about like two thirds maybe It is really the third act of the movie. Yeah, Tiger yeah, maybe yeah. yeah. So it doesn't really happen until like later on in the film. So yeah. this is all this is all sort of like establishing Boz and the the other privates and their relationship and and then of course Paxton and Boz's relationship and Paxton's trying to write that like he wants to talks about like writing a book right he keeps that journal and shit and he's always like journaling stuff and so this is like really setting up the characters who they are well, there's and- a kind of push and pull between Paxton and Boz in the sense that Paxton in many ways is the idealist Boz is the cynic and it's yeah. how those two meet with each other because yeah. it's like Paxton is kind of constantly trying to reconcile his own feelings about the war and why he joined up Boz. Because the, the ironic thing with this is that for someone who spends all of his time trying to figure out how to get other people out of the war, Boz never gets himself out of the army. Yeah. And that's the kind of weird thing that's kind of playing at the center of this is what is <sighs> – because Boz kind of ends the film still a fairly mysterious character. You almost feel – and this, of course, is jumping way ahead. But you almost feel that he was like a, a sacrificial lamb kind of figure, you know, that um, that maybe he didn't really – like he never wanted to fight. He, he says that all the time. He's like, listen, I'm not going to fight your war. And then there's that mystery at the end. You don't know what happened to him. Did he die in the war? Does he uh, – some people say they saw him in Mexico with some hot senorita. Um, there are all these different things. We don't really know what happened. He's kind of – he is a sort of mystic, almost religious character. Well, and I like the fact that you never really know who Boz is. You know he's from Texas. Mm. Like you know that much. 
But you don't know anything about, like, what's his education level, mm. like, what his family background was, like, if he's married, like, what? You don't... You, you end the film. And I actually like the fact that, for the most part, you don't really know... You, you, you only have the bare bones about who Paxton is as well. This film is not concerned with trying to just give you lots of kind of window dressing to try and explain mm. who these characters are. They have these very their their relations to each other is much more is is much more concerning yeah their relations to each other and then their relations to the sort of expectations that the military has on them to to have them fight for the war cuz i think one of the things i love so much about this film is that you get a very different perspective on what it's like to be drafted into the military during this conflict cuz there are lots of 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 films that explore the Vietnam War or even TV shows like MASH, right? And you know, yeah. in MASH there was the character MASH that, is actually technically about Korea. Oh, is it Korea? Yeah, it's a, it's Korea. Oh, I thought it was Vietnam. Oops, my bad. Um but you know how there's the one character and I can't remember what his name was, but the guy that is always dressing up in like dresses and shit like that cuz he's trying yeah. to he's trying to get out of the military. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so you know, you do see a little bit of like that the, the people that don't want to be in. But most military films what's valorized is like the the duty to country, or if it's not duty to country, it's about brotherhood and, you know, fighting for your man that's next to you. Whereas this film is like, these guys are like, fuck this shit. Some of them, not all well, of them. I, uh, but they're like, fuck this. We got dragged into this. And well, it's I, interesting, I too, be because it's a Vietnam film that is not set in Vietnam. Like, at no point do the characters yeah. ever go to Vietnam. It's all about the lead up to going to Vietnam, yeah. which is interesting because you have this kind of mm. thing hanging over them at all times. This idea that Impending Vietnam doom. is this inevitable thing that they're going to. Yeah. And everyone's always talking about when you're over there in country and what's going to happen. And, you know, and I, and I, and I think it's a very, very interesting dynamic. But, okay, so getting back into the plot again. So... What happens is essentially uh, Wilson is really fucking upset and humiliated by the fact that Boz has been made platoon guy. So and he kind of can't take the fact that Boz just is one. So is has been given this position when he doesn't give a fuck and that he keeps sort of showing up Wilson. So Wilson kind of in this moment of um, kind of uh, essentially – Madness decides he's going to uh, basically starts kind of like trying to intimidate Boz with a, a loaded firearm on the firing range. Um, well, there's the doesn't he get the shit kicked out of him before that? He jumps him. Remember at one point in the barracks. He oh, jumps, yeah, he jumps him he and jumps, Boz beats so the shit out of him. He jumps him. Oh, okay, Boz. Because, yeah. okay, sorry, yeah, again, where it's, it's, it's sometimes, because the film's very episodic, it's hard to kind of like, but um, Boz and um, Paxton sneak off, and they go to New Orleans, and it's heavily implied that Boz may have found a route out, like as in, like, a van that'll take him to Mexico. And they have this whole conversation right. where they're standing on top of this um, train in a train yard. And uh, Boz is kind of saying to Paxton, "Okay, we need to jump off and break these legs so we can uh, so we can get out of the war." And you kind of feel like they're never that serious. Yeah, like yeah. they're always kind of like half kind of like, okay. We're gonna do it in the count of three. Okay, one, two, three. Ah, I can't do it. You know, kind of like. <laughs> And then, like, even, like, when they get down and then they go, like, oh, they go, like, ah, oh, man, we should have jumped. It's like, oh, we can always go back. Nah, it's fine. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and again, like, the relationship between Paxton and Boz is very sweet. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's like, it's a very kind of, like, dude bros kind of, like, together in war kind of, yeah. there's a little bit of a homoerotic edge to it. But, you know, too, clearly yeah. the, the guys have seen each other's dicks. It's all, you know. It's all good, man. It's, 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 it's a little bit intimate. Yeah. Um, 
But, um, you know, it's uh, basically basically I'm Paxton and Austin is boss. That's that's the relationship that's going on there. Um, but um, but anyway, the, the point is that, uh, you know, they've snuck off. And, you know, Wilson has this huge sort of issue with Boz, obviously, so he knows they've snuck off. So he's been waiting up for them to sneak back into the barracks, at which point um, he jumps Boz and Boz beats the fucking shit out of him because, you know, I mean, I I know he's playing a Texan, but he's still an Irishman, you know, deep down. And you should never (laughs) probably try to jump an Irishman, you know, after a night out. It's a bad idea. Yeah. So and and I love it, too, because it, it. What's so great is Wilson is the guy that jumps Boz, but Boz ends up getting the better hand and a lot of times – or the upper hand. And a lot of times in these movies when they choreograph these fight scenes, it's like an even thing, like right? Like each person gets the same amount of shots and they each have the same black eye or the other person's got a bloody lip or whatever. Whereas this is totally one-sided. Like Boz – Could you imagine how much machismo was going on on this set? I would love it, man. This is so much masculine energy going on. I would love it. Exactly. (laughs) Like, um, but, um, but basically, okay. I mean, cause you could kind of feel like, I feel like Colin Farrell and Shea Wiggum are both guys who would kind of be like, yeah, let's just like fucking go for it. Let's just like beat the shit out of each other. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. They, you know that they, when they were choreographing they're like, Hey man, don't worry, dude, you don't have to hold back. Just, just, just fucking, just fucking go for just it, man. Go for just it, fucking bro. hit me. I can take it. That's right. You know, it's like, <laughs> um, but yeah, but anyway, but I think the significance of this too, is that when the fight gets broken up by like the guys in charge, Immediately, everyone sides with Boz. Everyone's kind of like, oh, Wilson jumped him. It's all, you know, and and Wilson's got no backup. He's got no friends in the in the platoon. He's the one guy. He has the one guy. Yeah, he's got like the one guy who also kind of looks like an inbred hick. He kind of looks. um, And they're kind of like so it, it is that thing immediately where I think that drives Wilson even more crazy because he thinks of himself as the proper soldier and Boz is some kind of. Because he he also talks too about being like a fucking about the fucking hippies and the fucking you know commie sympathizers and he's right. clearly a guy who in the modern age would be watching a lot of Fox News. Yeah, like, and he calls Colin Farrell a bleeding heart. You know, he might as well have a Make America Great Again hat on. A hundred percent. You know, he he time traveled, bought a, a Make America Great hat, and came back. You know, he's. <laughs> He's got a metaphorical one, you know, inside him. Right? That's you know? right. That's right. But anyway, um, so everyone sides with that, which drives Wilson even more crazy. So Wilson's had the shit kicked out of him. He's also got no friends in the platoon. So this is what leads him on the firing range to have like this moment of fucking craziness and sort of tries to one up boss and kind of threaten him with this gun. And he kind of like, it's really like fucking weird. Cause he's kind of go like, Oh, like head or head or body, you decide, you know? And it's, it's like yeah. this real. And I, I like, again, I, what I like about the films, I like that the aesthetic is always messy. Everything always feels very tactile. And so it's a, it's a thing that should feel really melodramatic, but because it feels so kind of emotionally messy, it kind of makes sense that he's kind of had this kind of snap moment where he's just decided this is a good mm. idea yeah you know um and and i mean what essentially happens is boss is lucky as fuck because the gun jams um and um at which point he has um you know him and paxton are like sitting in the office with the guy who's in charge of the base and he's and paxton's like this guy needs to be court-martialed you know you need to you need to get him out of the army and the platoon and the the, the base guys the base commander's like what the fuck are you doing here paxton get the fuck out and he says to boss like you know you could press for a court-martial on this or you could let it you could let us handle it our way that would certainly be the way we'd prefer it at which point boss is kind of like you know what i wash my hands of this fuck it and of course 
course, this becomes significant later on because the army does handle it in their own way. So I think we can now at this point jump to Tigerland. So, uh, so in, in, so, uh, Wilson is out of the platoon and the platoon is sent to the last portion of their training exercise, which is Tigerland, which is essentially a base in, um, in uh, Louisiana. I think the whole thing takes place in Louisiana, but this, this is based specifically been set up in Louisiana to perfectly, as much as they can, try and echo what the conditions of Vietnam are. It involves right. them going on doing, you know, constant punishing marches, which just like physically test them as much as they possibly can, as well as putting them in the sort of same sort of camping conditions. They do sort of training exercises with um, these sort of mock villages where they have some one platoon playing the Viet Cong and the the, the, the sort of people in the villages and then also then the platoons have to come in and run drills on it. And basically, you know, they also set the platoons up against each other. Like, if you fail at this, you got to go on two more days of just punishing marches. Right. So, Everyone's at a super heightened, fucked up, you know, sort of uh, perspective at this point. Uh, Paxton is clearly not being able to pull his weight. He's falling behind a lot. He's really struggling. Boz can see that Paxton is not going to do well over there. Mm. Boz, meanwhile, also finds a hole in the fence, which is a perfect place for him to hook up with the people that he's uh, paid to get him across the Mexican border, or is at least is implied right. has been paid. And this is why, again, I kind of say Paxton is technically the main character, because you never see Boz talking to these people. You see it through Paxton's perspective. Right. So in theory, you're always viewing everything mostly through Paxton's perspective. Well, and that's because they set up the film. They only really have like two moments of voiceover. Yeah. It's when they set up the film. And it's Paxton narrating kind of like he's telling a story. And then at the very end, they bookend it with him again closing it up and basically talking about his final experience and who Boz was and how he never saw Boz again, et cetera, et cetera. And then a little bit of the theories of what may have happened. So it is it is told through Paxton's perspective. So the thing with it then is like essentially – so. What they do is they have this training exercise where um, the platoon is supposed to basically play the villagers in this mock village. And there's one Viet Cong person there and there's one person who speaks English. And the platoon that's coming in, their job is to find the Viet Cong person and um, through finding the translator and finding the way to do it. So it's, a, it's essentially a sort of a, a mock exercise. That's right. However... Um, the what they are surprised to find is that the platoon that has come in, who again has been set up with this idea that if you don't find the person, you got to go on punishing marches. However, if they find the Viet Cong person, the you know Boz's troop, they have to go on the two day punishing marches. So when they come in, they're super jacked up. They're super kind of like. They're super, you know, kind of like tired and, 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 and exhausted from basically having been out for like two days straight. Um, they find that the platoon is led by none other than Wilson, who has not been kicked out of the army and has simply been pushed into a different platoon somewhere else. Um, at which point he seizes on this to start trying to beat the shit out of Paxton, which basically causes the entire exercise to just go up in tits, you know, and kind of just completely everyone just ends up in a kind of fist yeah. fight and he, they have to break it up. He pistol whips him. And he it, pistol whips it's, yeah. it's, it's like fucked up. Bad, bad pistol whips yeah. him, yeah. Um, or or, or, or we, not pistol whips, but machine gun whips. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so obviously they're upset about the fact that um, Wilson's not being kicked out of the army. But what the fuck can you do at this point? 
Boz um, that night goes to try and sort of get through the hole in the fence he's made, and he's followed by one of the other platoon guys. His name, I, I, again, it's an actor I don't really know. I can't remember what the character's name is, but he's kind of a through line throughout there. There, and he's kind of like he's someone who sort of shows a lot of support for Boz, and he's kind of like I think the way he puts it at one point is like that nobody's made any damn sense since I got into this goddamn green machine, mm. but you know, except this man here. Yeah. So you know, so I'm with you, Boz. That sort of thing, mm. and so he kind of like he follows Boz. And he says to him, like, you know, if you go, like, Wilson will kill Paxton. Like, right. you know, it's it's like you you have a responsibility here. And Boz is kind of like, like, fuck, what, what am I – what are you expecting of me? What, 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 you know, why do I need to be anything other than kind of why, – why should I be doing anything other than looking out for myself? Um, and so, you know, uh, the – the guy returns to the platoon and then, you know, it's re- and then later boss shows back up and obviously he's decided to stay to help protect Paxton, which point we come to uh, the climax of the film where um, they're on a training exercise and uh, Wilson essentially takes out the what is it? It's just kind of like it's, it's, a, it's a, he, he takes out the a, blanks and he, he takes out the blanks and yeah. he puts in and a cartridge. There's also like a there's also a um, uh, a muzzle. Yeah, like a safety thing. Yeah, safety thing that he takes out as well. And he takes that and, out yeah, and he puts in live rounds and he essentially starts when they come across Boz and Paxton, he starts firing at them. And Ba and um, you know immediately everyone stops and it is kind of like you know everyone knows that something really fucking wrong is happening and actually the interesting thing with it is that it's I feel like it could have been much more overly melodramatic and overly action actiony than mm. it is but it's almost immediately like everyone realizes fuck there's live rounds it's coming from there stop and everyone puts him at gunpoint and says stop doing that and Boz sees this opportunity immediately to save Paxton and puts his gun with the sort of the blanks and the sort of, which still creates a muzzle flash obviously and puts it right next to Paxton Paxton's face and shoots it. So the muzzle flash burns him in the face and sort of damages his eye, which immediately then gets him out of the army. Right, right, right. Yeah. And Um, that's the, well, and so what you get to is, and that's, that's, that's the sort of, I guess, if you will, the, uh, the resolution of the film, right? The next scene is this is like their last training exercise is now it's everybody from Tigerland getting on the buses to be shipped over to Vietnam and you see Paxton rolling up in his like nice dressed uniform and he's not carrying his bag and getting ready to go and he's got a bandage on his eye and he talks to Boz about how uh, how it was just so happened to be the perfect injury that was significant enough to get him out but not significant enough to give him permanent eye damage and that he's going to be okay but he doesn't have to go to Vietnam now and he looks at Boz and is like, you know, thank you. And Boz is like, what are you talking about, man? It was just, a, it was an accident. I got lucky. When he also like, he <laughs> says like, he's like, I could have, I could have blinded you. Like, it's like he, he has that sort of serious point of saying like, you know, it was lucky that, yeah. you know, I took a chance, but I, I could have actually permanently injured you. Yeah. And the recognition was, is that he knew, like you said earlier, that Paxton would not have made it in Vietnam. So he essentially saved his life. And then you get that voiceover at the end that is like, uh, and this is Paxton talking. He's like, you know, Boz got on the bus, and he's like, I never saw him again. And it's very, it's very within the style of this film too, because it's very perfunctory and it's very straightforward and unsentimental. Yeah, there's, and it's not frilly at all. Yeah, no. yeah, it's, it's not wordy either. It's no. very information based. It's kind of yeah. like 
So Boz went off. I never heard from him again. And, you know, some people said he died over there. But, you know, other people said they saw him in Mexico. And, uh, you know, but if I know Boz, he'd just be pissed off I was talking about him. Because, of course, the thing, too, is Boz takes his journal that he's been sort of like (laughs) writing all these things down and just starts. He's like, and because the guy's like, I'm going to write a book about you. And he's like, no, you're not. And just like as he's like driving away, just rips up the journal. And And he's throwing the pages out the window. And and I got to say, Paxton's got a like a like a like a look on his face that's almost like at first he's upset but then it's almost like the look at the end is like all oh, that boss <sighs> i still want to fuck him so and so yeah i mean i i had never even heard of this movie before and i'm so glad that you recommended this to me i'm gonna say something that is just not in, in any way hyperbolic but i genuinely mean this this is now my favorite colin farrell role like I think it's always above been above in Bruges, which is which was my favorite role prior to this. I think that he is fucking fantastic. But in you this. can see why. But that's the thing too is like for years, like you kind of like I'd always hear people kind of go like, oh, you know, Colin Farrell, you know, he's just like this kind of guy they tried to make into a movie star because he'd be in things like SWAT and shit like that where right. you you didn't. You didn't really get the idea of why everyone was so big on Colin Farrell. Right. I mean, this was the film. This was the film that ever because this is like one of the biggest examples I've ever seen of just a star-making performance where you look at this guy and you go, "This man should be a fucking movie star." Because Absolutely. he is like because it I mean and I, and I think so much of this movie revolves around just how exemplary he works in this role. Mm. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there's um there's a charm about him. There's an edge about him. Um, obviously, he's a good-looking dude. Um, there's there's like a power and a control. And you at the same time... You can see why everyone wants to follow him. You can see absolutely. why everyone believes in him. Absolutely. Because he has conviction, right? Everybody else is there because they were drafted, except for Paxton, which is the ninth kind of interesting thing. His... He's it's almost like you can tell that he's doing that because he's from New York and he's educated and he feels like a maybe a sense of duty or something like that. But he's kind of like a middle class dude. Like he's not he's not a military kind of minded individual, but maybe he has uh, he has light convictions. Boz has convictions where he's like, I am not fighting this war. This is not my war. These this is not my battle. I have no well, you desire get the feeling to that Paxton probably could have gotten out of this in some kind of a way. You know, yeah, and he's been yeah. to university, so clearly, you know, he didn't have to fight while he was in university. And he's clearly there's some guilt uh, that he mm. feels for the fact that he has been allowed to get out of this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And and then at the same time, you also get in that scene where they're peeling potatoes when there's the guy from the sandlot who is the slow guy. Um, oh, yeah. 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 He's the main guy from the sandlot. Um, or he's in Mystic River. He's the guy with. The he's the guy that's dating Sean yeah, Penn's daughter yeah, in Mystic yeah. River. Um, his name is I think like Tom Tom Gurry or something like that. Yeah, Tom Gurry. Tom Gurry. Yeah. Um, and uh, when they're in there and and, and the, the the slower guy Tom Gurry's character is giving this speech about you know his family and whatnot back home and he's talking about all these problems and shit like that. Colin Farrell's character boss boss he just breaks out and he he gets disturbed if you will by the intensity and the severity of this yeah. story that this guy is saying because he realizes the stakes that this is a, a kid that he doesn't have the intellectual skills to be able to navigate on his own really and he's gonna die he's gonna fucking yeah. die in Vietnam and he's gonna leave behind all these things and he's just been brought into this sort of the, the the intimacy of this this family and he realizes the stakes and 
you not only get the charm and the toughness and all these other things, but you also get the fact that he's actually vulnerable and he's breakable. And he does it with such great skill that I think that this is like, really, this is like, fuck, man. This is amazing. It really makes me think that the the sort of movie star turn is below what Colin Farrell was capable of, which is, again, what you see now in his later life, post-In Bruges, post-rehab Colin Farrell, who's now obviously doing more serious and interesting acting work as well. Well, I think I think that's the thing, too, is I think he really is a I think he's a really great actor. And I think I think the things that are best about him are when he's not allowed to sit on kind of easy, formulaic kind of um, leading man roles. I feel Mm. like, you know, I like seeing Colin Farrell being tested. You know, and mm. I think that's kind of that's kind of the stuff he does best. It's why I love seeing him in stuff like The Lobster or Killing of a Sacred Deer, um, or even say something like The Beguiled, because I feel like that's where he should be. It's that type mm. of movie that suits his talents a lot. Whereas like stuff like A Winter's Tale, or like even like sort of stuff like with a remake of Total Recall, that's it's just like it feels like a waste of him. To yeah. be honest, I mean, I did like The Recruit, but maybe that was also because I was young and a bit like naive. But I like it was fine. But like the recruit again, it's kind of like that early point where he's kind of like because that's the thing is like that's the thing is what essentially happens is, you know, Tigerland, I think, played at Sundance. Everybody sees Tigerland in the industry. You know, all the casting people, all those people see Tigerland and they're like, this guy's fucking amazing. We need to put him in things. So he then turns up in like a whole bunch of bad kind of bad kind of. Things like American Outlaws and Hearts War, you know, where he's kind of playing boring leading men. And then, you know, and then the stuff he's great in is things like Minority Report, where well, he's kind for of for me, playing... isn't isn't that what kind of made him famous, Minority Report? Well, that's the thing, is like Steven Spielberg sees Tigerland, puts him in Minority Report, and that's kind of where Colin that's where Colin Farrell kind of becomes like more of a mainstream name. Yeah. But even like before Minority Report, he was still in Amer- he was still playing Jesse James in American Outlaws and yeah. you know and he was still in Hearts Wars, the second lead with Bruce Willis, mm, you know. Yeah. And then he's like, he's like in Phone Booth, and he's playing terrible uh, movie. <laughs> yeah, and he's playing uh, again with Joel Schumacher, uh, and uh, then and also he has a cameo in Veronica Guerin, which is also a Joel Schumacher film. Which again is that funny thing of who who is the perfect person to play a f- to, to 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 direct a film about a crusading Irish journalist. Obviously, it's Joel Schumacher. <laughs> what is your hate with Joel Schumacher? Joel Schumacher's never made a good film, really. O- outside Tigerland. of Tigerland, outside of Tigerland, I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I, you know, I. It's interesting because I kind of sit there with Tigerland, and I'm kind of like, how is it that he managed to make this film? And I don't know if it's if it's it's just a perfect. A meeting of a bunch of different things and the fact that it's a really great script uh it's got some really great actors in it and it's got it's got almost a style that i feel almost um defies direction and allows allows it to really be shaped by an editor in a big mm. way because it's so committed to this kind of handheld um uh docudrama style that i feel it almost allows for uh, a, a sort of fairly free form directionless way of a uh, way of filmmaking. Mm. Um, but it's just like my, my problems with Joel Schumacher are often he takes really good concepts and ruins them or mm. like he, he just makes really fucking trite movies like, okay, like, so this, this film's okay with the Joel Schumacher thing. Like, I mean, 
Batman and Robin is one of the most egregiously awful films ever made. Um, and I mean, I, I also I have a slight resentment because I feel like I always there's things like, for instance, like I think eight millimeter is a great idea on paper. And I think everything wrong with that movie is down to Joel Schumacher. Hmm. Um, and then also just the fact that he. You know, things like A Time to Kill or The Client, they're almost they're almost good movies. And there's just you just you, you feel like if somebody better had been making them, mm. then it could have been a good movie. And I feel like there's a whole bunch of things with Joel Schumacher. I'm kind of like he almost made a good movie mm. like and, and I think that's almost frustrating, more frustrating than someone who's just shitty across the board. And I think Tigerland is by far his best movie. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really, really well-made film. I mean, from- and here's, here's the interesting. Here's the interesting thing with how I know about Tigerland. I know about Tigerland because there was – I used to read Premiere Magazine and Premiere Magazine did this thing that was like the five best films about each war. Um, So it had like different wars and what the five best films about them were. And Mm. and, and in Vietnam, they included Tigerland, which is a film I'd never fucking heard of. And I was like – and this would have been a couple of years after Tigerland came out. So and so when I saw that and I, then I was like on my parents had HBO and like HBO was always just showing lots of different like movies at all times. So like you two in two in the afternoon, there'd be a movie on. And so you'd go like, oh, well, OK, watch it. Tigerland would just pop up on there. And I was like, oh, I remember Premiere Magazine saying it was one of the best, like five best Vietnam movies. And mm. so I watched it and I was like, I was like, oh, my God, like. Colin Farrell's like really fucking good in this movie. And again, yeah. like I knew Colin Farrell is like the guy from like American Outlaws. Uh, you know, it's like, right. you know, it was going to be in SWAT. Like it was like, it wasn't like I knew him as like some great actor. And then you're like, oh shit, I see why everyone's buzzing about this guy. And yeah. then I, and then, and it's like a film that then it was weirdly when I came over to the UK, I obviously I, I'd lost all my films from when we moved from the U.S. because you know, they didn't work over here. Yep. So I had to start rebuilding my video collection. And weirdly, one of the first films I bought was Tigerland. <laughs> so it was a movie that at a certain point in my life, there wasn't a lot of movies that I had. So I rewatched it a lot. Mm. Um, and I just was always like really, really, you know, and I think there's there's elements too that appeal to a young man in it. You know, there's there, there's there, there's boobs in it for one thing. That's right. Um, but, um, but like there's also just like this um, – you know, I, I think there's a, a way of dealing with these really specific points of young male fear and frustration about the future and camaraderie mm. and, you know, and, and it, you know, and I think it's one of the best films at pausing this idea of what it was like to feel hopelessly stuck in this system of the draft and the American uh, military industrial complex um, and being having this system that you can't fight against that you're kind of stuck yeah. in. And, and yeah, the two most interesting things to me, one is that is that I'm not used to seeing a war film that isn't just simply a piece of kind of American propaganda, right? That's like, oh, hold on, it froze up again. Oh, are we back? back? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's... um. It's refreshing to see a film that isn't just a piece of sort of American military propaganda, right? Uh, that that even if it shows the sort of atrocities of war, there's still always that 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 element that makes you think that either these soldiers know that they're fighting for a greater cause, or even if they don't know it, 
the fact that they don't know it doesn't negate the fact that they're still fighting for some type of greater cause, whether it's the fraternity or the country or something like that. But also and, it's like it's like these guys feeling on the war is almost incidental. I mean it's actually amazing mm. often how little most of the recruits talk about what their feelings about the war are because mm. it almost doesn't matter what their feelings on the war are. Wilson is obviously – Wilson doesn't seem to be so much pro-war as he is – pro non bleed uh, pro uh, be anti bleeding hearts like he <laughs> like his 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 feelings about uh sort of um uh, I, I, it seems to be far more centered on his own personal agendas rather than his actual wider feelings about the political, you know, the political problems overseas. You know, whereas outside of that, maybe Paxton is the only one who really ever lists any kind of thought processes about what the war represents. Hmm. You know, and Boz is kind of it's pretty again. Boz is pretty straightforward. His his interest is not in the wider issues of Vietnam. It's just he doesn't want to go to war. Mm. Yeah, just in general, he doesn't. Yeah, and and that's a really nice perspective to gain and to to really explore in the context of young recruits being prepared to go to this perhaps inevitable doom. Um, that's the one thing. And then the other thing that I thought was really fascinating was so often you see military films or we just see in general threats that are made uh, in media or threats that are made um, – you know, in life. And it's like, well, if you don't do this, I'm going to do this. And then the other person is like, okay, well, I don't want that done to me. Boz's character is like, you can't do anything to me. You have no power. You can beat the shit out of me. You can do whatever you want, but you have no power over me. And there was something so interesting to see that character, because I've been thinking about this a lot lately, just in my own life, that, that you know, you hear these, these threats that are made by people, and it's, if you don't do this, then I'm going to do this. You know, people are getting doxxed nowadays uh, for controversial views online, and um, there's, there's always these threats that somebody is wielding because they, they think that they have some sort of power. And what was refreshing about Boz's character is he's ultimately saying... There is no power because what can you do? You're not going to kill me. And then maybe even if you go further, even if you do kill me, so what? Like you have nothing to – you have no leverage here. And in the face of the military and in the face of the drill sergeants who are the sort of like manifestations of the military, right, or the instantiations of the military, it's so interesting to see someone who is the small person who has no power basically look at the person who has the power and say, actually, you don't have any power over me. Well, and it's interesting too how little it has to do with his own ego or anything as well is that he's not doing it because he wants to be some kind of hero or he wants to show anybody else up or anything like that. You kind of feel like there is an element to Boz where he is some kind of raging id who just kind of does mm. things because like he doesn't like it's not like he necessarily I mean, he does things like say like stick up for the little guy but you kind of feel like it's something that he does in the moment it's just mm. like he's just driven by a oh fuck it i'll go do that now you know it's like yeah. there's not this it's kind of nice. like it's not like this principled beautiful soul no there's no grand plan he's not yeah, trying to yeah, make yeah. some kind of grand statement he doesn't he's he doesn't like the military but he only doesn't like the military because he's been stuck in it it's like he doesn't it's not like he's ever like you don't feel like he's a guy who sat down and has some kind of thought out processes as to why he doesn't like the military he just kind of like he's stuck in it and he doesn't enjoy being in it yeah, I mean, he clearly does have the grander idea of uh, this is not my war and I will yeah. not fight this war. But so often writers want to take that 
that that relatively simple idea and make it like he doesn't want to fight for the war because he's a social justice advocate and he's fighting for civil rights or he's fighting for this and he has all of these grand ideas. This is a young man who maybe doesn't have such a clear, marked-out philosophical vision, and it makes it, it – it's a very fresh vision, but it also makes it not so like derivative and sentimental and saccharine, which is what we, we oftentimes see in you know, like war films that want to exploit the hero myth. When I was always taken, I was always really taken by the book um, Into the Wild. Um, and one of the things that mm. the book explores is this idea that um, young men often have this kind of need to go out and sort of conquer something or kind of find <laughs> themselves or do something kind of like, do something kind of crazy. You know, my, so, ex, my ex-girlfriend, uh, Melissa, what she used to always say is she would always say that, I, Austin, I realize you got to go slay your dragons. You know, go, yeah. you got, you got dragons to slay, go slay your dragons. Well, I mean, like for me, I mean, that was kind of like me just like going to Australia at 18 and going and going backpacking with no real set plan or idea of why I was doing it or what I was going. I just need to go do something. Yeah. It was just kind of like, and you know, and the example, you know, that the, the idea within into the wild is that essentially this is what uh, the main character is kind of doing. You know, it, mm. it's this desire to go live off the grid and fulfill some kind of like, and I think, I think there to a lot of young men, there's a kind of, you know, we, we get so much into this idea of the, there's almost the cliche of the angry young man, the, the, the mm. guy who's just off to go sort of do some, you know, and it doesn't really know where to put his energy or where to put any of his frustrations. He's just, you know, trying to find an outlet somewhere. And, you know, and that's the thing is like, it's easy mm. to forget sometimes that these are young men. Like, all, you know, a lot of these guys were 18, kids. 19, 20. Kids. They're, they're kids, you know. And Boz is probably not that much older. Boz is probably, what, like 20? Yeah. Like, you know. you know, And it's it's so it's it's – they are guys who don't really have much – they don't have any world experience. They don't have mm. any kind of like real – you know, they, they, a lot of them don't really know what they want to do or where they want to go. They just know they've been stuck in this kind of uh, machine, you know, that they're mm. they then have to make the best out of it. And it's and, and that's what I think is is interesting is like boss has almost put this this energy of the angry young men into this kind of rebellion against the uh, the military, the military industrial complex he finds himself in. Yeah. And you don't see that on film too much, which is why it's surprising that Joel Schumacher doesn't have this same level of adeptness when it comes to exploring nuanced themes on screen. You know, like like I I like A Time to Kill and The Client enough. I have um, some creepy moral. I have some I have some moral issues with A Time to Kill. Well, I haven't seen it in about like 15 years, so I liked it in my younger and days. It's not, I and it's not it. just the fact that Kevin Spacey is in it. <laughs> um, I'd have to see it again probably before I could put on my real analytical hat. But in my in my memory, I remember liking it, let's say. Um, but it is surprising that he he hasn't been able to make a film like this because this film I think is profound on so many different levels. First of all, I think it's shot, like you've talked about, in a really interesting way. It's shot on 16 millimeters, so it's got that sort of gritty lo-fi look to it. Um, a lot of handheld, I mean, probably all handheld. And so it's obviously got a little bit more of like a frenetic pacing to it. And it's really, um, 
it's really real. I know that can be a cliche sometimes, but what I mean by that is it just seems like we are being thrown into actual training exercises to well, prepare again, for war. Well, again, you don't feel like you're in a period setting. Is the Not thing. at all. Like, it disconnects itself from the trappings of the distancing effect of watching kind of period detail. So it's like yeah. when you watch something like Mad Forrest Men, Gump. It seems, you know, or Forrest <laughs> Gump, exactly. It feels such in this in nostalgia vacuum where you're watching this immaculate version of history. Right. Whereas this just feels like something, this feels like you, somebody just took some cameras and shot whatever was around. It doesn't feel yeah. like, and I mean, it's not like, it's not trying to copy uh, the look of films from the 70s, but it feels like something, it feels closer to something that was just shot in the 70s with what was around than it does feel like something that's trying to uh, echo this vibe of 70s nostalgia. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think at a, at a formal level, it's pretty successful. And then I think even at a thematic level, you know, all the stuff that we've been talking about, it's just a really refreshing Vietnam film. And it is appalling that it literally made 175000 or $176,000 at the box office. Like, I don't even understand how that's possible. That's like it played at a couple of festivals and then uh, probably had like a real limited release at like Art House. Well, you, you feel like if there's theaters. any justice in the world, Colin Farrell should have really been being nominated for Best Actor for this as well. Dude, he's fucking – honestly, people, if you're listening to this, I am not exaggerating. He is fan-fucking-tastic, and he's doing it all the while with a really good Texan accent. Oh, he is like <laughs> – again, I did not know for years that he was Irish because he, really? you know, his accent game is always on point. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's what we kind of were talking about uh, in a couple of what, a couple episodes ago. That somehow the Irish accent is able to it's able to adapt well to the American accent. Um, when it's it's interesting yeah. too because actually the ostensible main character of this film, Matthew Davis, is probably one of the people who did you know least well in the years afterwards. Well, he was a star in Vampire Diaries for a long time. Which, if you're into TV. Then that would be your thing. I am okay. not into. That. I remembered him as the asshole boyfriend from Legally Blonde. <laughs> yeah, he was, and he that. was also like the love interest in Blue Crush. <laughs> Blue Crush. I will hear god. no bad words said about Blue Crush. Blue Crush uh, is the shit. Oh my god. Yeah, we'll have to watch that one of these days. But yeah, I mean, he was in Vampire Diaries for a long time, so people would know him from that. Yeah, and I think that's that's maybe it is maybe he was ultimately a guy who was suited to being on the CW. That was kind of well. His. He's a he's a really good looking dude, but right? he's like boringly good looking. If you know he, what I mean, yeah. You don't you it's don't like, like that? Yeah, like he's like there's a little bit of edge. Like Colin Farrell's like like good looking, but like sexy good looking. There's like there's like edge to him. Whereas, Whereas like, this guy's just a pretty boy. He's a pretty boy. He's like you know, yeah. but he get, again, you know, he looks like an Abercrombie model. It's like he he's like he's um, he was almost anonymously good looking. If he you know absolutely what I mean. looks like an Abercrombie model. That's which exactly is why like. you know when he comes across Colin Farrell, he's so fucking thirsty because know. you know he's like ah, oh, it's a real man there. It's a real man right there. Yeah, he's like, I'm a I'm a powder puff man, but that's a real man. But like again, like I love Clifton Collins Jr., who's a guy who's been plugging away, doing great work and supporting roles for years and years mm-hmm. and years. You know at one of those guys who I always find fascinating because he kind of he's he's like again ethnically ambiguous. Like he can is he Hispanic play. or something? Yeah, he's he's Hispanic originally. Like I think okay. his his original last name is like Gonzalez or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but I think he might be mixed race. But it's like but he's kind of one of these guys who's just really ethnically ambiguous. So I first remember him from he's the guy who gets um, who's uh, who Catherine Zeta Jones hires. To kill the informer in traffic. Oh Jesus! I don't and also remember. Benicio del Toro like seduces him, and then he gets like tortured. You know, it's <laughs> I like, don't it's, even remember. 
It's uh, a, Traffic's a great movie. But um, and then Shea Wiggum, who was a guy who for years again, anytime I saw him, I'd be like, "That's the fucking dude from Tigerland. It's the crazy <laughs> fucking dude from Tigerland." Now who I'm again, going to. Who again is an actor that I really really like, and partially I think it might just be because his name is Shea Wiggum, because Shea Wiggum is just a great name. It sounds like a name from a character in like The Simpsons or something like that. Yeah, uh, and then. Um, Cole Hauser, who again was somebody who people kind of tried to make into a leading man at one point. Is who, he the, the guy that comes in at the end? That's the yeah, he's Tiger the guy Land. at Tigerland. He's kind of in charge of Tigerland. I really like him as an actor. Yeah, um, he was in like like not um, was he in oh god the movie with Brendan Fraser and Matt Damon where they're in the prep school. Oh, um, School Ties. Was he like? I feel like he was in those types. Of yeah, movies. he was in School Ties. Yeah, and okay, he's in yeah. Dazed and Confused. Like he was yeah, a guy. Yeah. He's he's also in Goodwill Hunting. Like he pops up a lot in kind of like as like one of the guys in things yeah. for years. Yeah. And then he kind of had this period around the early 2000s where he was kind of on the verge of becoming like a dude people would put as the lead in something like he had this thriller called paparazzi, which was produced by Mel Gibson, which he was the lead in, which is like a vigilante movie star goes, goes vigilante against (laughs) paparazzi photographers. Uh, And then he had this movie called the cave, which came out around the same time as the descent, which, um, and he's also in things like too fast, too furious. And he kind of, yeah, he just never really quite popped as a leading man. Um, and yeah, but, and he's, so but he's always good. He's always oh, yeah. good. Yeah. And well, you know, it's interesting up now in things like, you know, a good day to die hard or Olympus has fallen or something like that. So we're talking about him. And in particular, one of the things I, I also think was interesting, there are only one or two characters in this movie that are like jacked up to the gills, right? Oh yeah. You have the Ezra drill sergeant guy. Is that his name? Ezra? The guy that has that heart to heart with Colin Farrell. Remember? Cause he says like, you know, what's your first name? I thought it was. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, Ezra. Ezra. The actor yeah. is called um, Afemo Omilamami. It's got a very hard okay. name to say. Well, he's bodied up. He's a big yeah. dude. And then there he is, is a big dude. He's a big dude. And there's maybe one or two of the private recruits guys that are that are big too. But oh, he's really... in Remember the Titans. That's probably what I recognize him from. Yeah, because he does have a face that I remember dude, too. Yeah. Dude, we need to talk about Remember the Titans. At some point. <laughs> but all of these dudes and all of these dudes, they have like regular bodies. And this is another yeah. thing you don't see a lot in war films. In war films, they want to have like the jacked guy. And a lot of times, yeah, guys in like the special forces are jacked. But like the average private dude that was recruited, um, you know, from his local town to go fight in Vietnam, they weren't going to be bodied up. And so you get no. these guys. Uh, like, what's his name? Cole Hauser? Is that his name? Uh, Cole Hauser, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's not like – he's a dude that's done two tours and he's now the sort of like training officer. And he's, well, not he's like also fucking... like – he's clearly like the kind of the high-end good soldier as well. Like, yeah, he's yeah. Like, he knows what he's doing. He's kind of like lifelong military. Yes. He's like – you know, he's like one of those guys who like – you. See, he's one of the guys you'd expect to be jacked up. Whereas like, you know, like the dude's like um, – Tom Gurry or um, or Clifton Collins Jr. Those are the dudes you wouldn't expect to be jacked up. Exactly. But even someone like Colin Farrell, who's clearly lean as fuck, he's not like bulky. And no, he's not bulky, but you no, no, know. he's 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 still he's still look. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's. There's he's a reason everybody's being very thirsty around him. He's sexy as fuck. Okay, um, but he's more like Brad Pitt in Fight Club than he is yeah. Brad Pitt in Troy. Yeah. 
Okay, yeah. He's Colin Farrell in Tigerland versus Colin Farrell in... I don't know. When was he bodied up? Alexander? Uh, <laughs> was I don't he know. Bodied up in I don't know if he's ever really been super bodied up. I feel like he's probably been bodied up at some point. Yeah, at some point, you know. But he's never crazy bodied up. But but I like that because again, it adds a nice element of of frailty to these young recruits. Um, well, again, like that you know, I think you're pretty is, is really nice. The thing that's great about bringing in someone like Michael Shannon is Michael Shannon's just got a face. He's got a yeah. he's got a really he's got a face and he's got an energy to him. And he's yeah. not again. He's like he's like. He's the kind of guy who there's something a little bit malevolent about him. Mm. So when he's kind of talking about like just really casually about like Charlie don't want to tell you shit because he is a tight lipped bastard. So that's why you need to like fry his nuts and he'll tell you he'll tell you the the minor league baseball scores. You know, that's it's right. like it's yeah. and it's that's that thing where you're kind of like, OK, this dude is kind of probably someone who has gotten very who's done well in the military because he's someone who's got a fairly you know uh easy way of dealing with some speculative moral issues <laughs> yeah that's a nice way of putting yeah yeah exactly exactly you know and i and i think that's it i think the casting is great across the board it's really interesting how many of these actors you kind of recognize yeah and because yeah. and that's 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 a difficult thing because you have a cat you you're you're dealing with a scenario where it's you know, all men, you're going to have very little kind of, so uh, there's a good chance that a lot of them will look kind of similar. Mm. So, you know, being able to get a really good cast of people who um, stand out is really important. Yeah. 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 And, and to be honest, it's, like, not, it's not like, it's like when you watch a CW show and you, you, you're like, I, I'm getting all of these people mixed up because they all look like Abercrombie models. Yeah, exactly. And, and the thing that's nice is, is not only are they individual persons that that sort of stand out in their own uniqueness but every single performance is pretty solid i mean not pretty solid very solid every single performance is rock solid um it really is i mean i think this is really a spectacular film i'm i'm actually so surprised that i'd never even heard of it before you know i, I mean like I would maybe al- I would maybe on as- like Maybe on like a best of list like you saw in Premiere Magazine, I had skimmed over it, but it never registered in my brain to even check it out. I think it would – I would probably go as far as to say I think it might be my favorite Vietnam movie, which is weird because, again, it is a film that actually – they never technically go to Vietnam. But I mm. think, again, it's so interesting to – and I think one of the interesting things is too because actually if you think about it, it's surprising how many of the Vietnam movies that we think of um, were around or just after Vietnam – and mm. I, I think that this film has enough per time to have the perspective to really deal with a lot of the social issues that were going on at the time, which I don't necessarily think, say, even say something like Platoon necessarily had the same space to be able to really deal with that. Mm. And it's interesting that it's a film that is dealing with the notion of Vietnam um, of outside of what the actual day-to-day life in Vietnam was like. It makes me want to watch Born on the Fourth of July. Born on the Fourth of July is really good, but of course, Born on the Fourth of July to me is less about Vietnam and more about the legacy of what of, of the aftermath of Vietnam. That's that's why this makes me want to watch it yeah. because this is the before, and then we have plenty of war films. But it'd be now it'd be kind of interesting to do like a double billing of a before with Tigerland and after with Born on the Fourth of yeah. July. You know? I I re I started rewatching Platoon fairly recently and didn't finish watching it. I was actually fairly disappointed by it hmm. interesting uh, 
And Platoon has that really awful voiceover that's really hard. To, it's, 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 it's mind-numbingly bad. I haven't seen this since I was like 18 years old and I was going through the phase of like watch, trying to watch like actors and yeah. films and things like that that I felt like I needed to to catch up. So I need to watch it again as a – Charlie Sheen is not a great actor either. Um, I, I also <laughs> – I think I think Platoon also has had to – I think if you watch Platoon now, it also has to deal with the legacy of Platoon where like mm. there's a lot of people have watched Platoon. So, you know, end up making right. things that are like Platoon. But – Oh my god, the bit where Charlie Sheen goes, when I think about the war, we didn't fight the enemy. We thought we fought ourselves. It's like everything he just has this awful kind of faux poetry that he's speaking through the whole thing, which is just and it's it's like and it doesn't feel it's the sort of thing that maybe Terrence Malick could get away with, but like it just really doesn't work in because Oliver Stone movies are very blunt and it just doesn't work in an Oliver yeah. in a in, um I mean, and to me, the thing about Apocalypse Now is Apocalypse Now is not really a movie about Vietnam. It just uses Vietnam as window dressing. Mm. Um, so it's it's Vietnam's kind of a weird war sometimes, you know, when you're when you're trying to figure out, like, what are the actual great Vietnam movies? I mean, Full Metal I think Jacket? probably Full Metal Jacket's really interesting because, of course, Full Metal Jacket kind of goes through the process. So Full Metal Jacket starts with the beginning and takes you all the way through the process of being a soldier in Vietnam. My good buddy, um, so, my good buddy Tim is the uh, is the gunman in the famous scene in Full Metal Jacket that's just like picking people off while shooting yeah. at the helicopter. So I would say I think probably <laughs> oh yeah 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 well, yeah you know the one and he's like that. get some or whatever the fuck he yeah, says yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think. Casualties of War by Brian De Palmer is kind of underrated. Um, I'd have to see it. I don't even know it. Sean Penn and Michael J. Fox. Um, Do you count Forrest Gump? No, I don't really count Forrest Gump. I don't count Forrest Gump in anything, really. Forrest Gump is not a good movie. (laughs) It's Uh, so funny. It's so funny that certain films like Forrest Gump that got so much critical attention, and if you talk to, like, the average person on the street, they view it as one of, like, the greatest films of all time. But when you talk to, like, filmmakers and people who are, like, film critics, they're like, Forrest Gump kind of (laughs) sucks. But Forrest Gump – the problem with Forrest Gump is it's just, like – it's just so – light it's almost like there's just no there's nothing to it and it's just it's like it's almost infuriating that you want the film to just have some kind of something a little bit deeper some kind of content to it and it's just it's like but it's all surface level and it's almost infuriating how it (laughs) and also i i I suppose there's a weird conservative edge to forrest gump where it it is that thing where the the dumb guy who just kind of does everything he's told ends up becoming a millionaire and his girlfriend who goes off and becomes part of the counterculture and you know uh she she ends up getting beaten by her hippie boyfriend and then ends up dying of aids it's like it's there's a real nasty conservative (laughs) edge going through forrest gump that i find really kind of disturbing Uh. and i i don't think the film and also i actually think if you if you hear about the novel that forrest gump is based off of there's a much deeper satirical edge which is just lost from the film um where you know i think the i there's a satirical idea to the fact that this guy is a dumb know-nothing guy who everything just kind of happens to in this kind of and it's, it's kind of meant to be some sort of satirization of american culture whereas this it kind of seems to romanticize the idea right Right, right. Well, let's wrap this up, man. What yeah, are, let's wrap this up because we can go fi- for, for very yeah, long. Fi- on this. Final thoughts on Tigerland. I'd say go see it. It's fantastic. Colin Farrell's fucking brilliant, and I love the gritty style. I love, I love sixteen millimeter. I would love to shoot a film in sixteen millimeter. Uh, th- this feature that I'm working on right now, actually, that I'm writing, I would love to shoot it in sixteen. I know that's like totally douchey and art, art, arty, but I fucking, I love it. I think it's well. Fantastic. It's almost shocking to think because this film was ten million. It's almost shocking now to think that this film was ten million because it's like, mm. it's. Like, um, and I think probably part of it is because they shot it in 16 millimeter, but it's like, it's, um, 
you know, you, you just see, you know, again, I, I keep going back to this, but you just don't see people spending money on, on these type of movies anymore. I mean, it's just the fact that there's the cast is fucking huge. And so each yeah. of those people, they're not extras. Like almost everybody that's there probably, you know, at union rates, um, it makes sense that it would cost that much because, you know, they're paying. I mean, fuck, you got. But the thing is, too, is. Colin Farrell wasn't Colin Farrell. They're all unknown. And all Michael getting, Shannon I, I wasn't would, Michael I Shannon. I would be surprised if any of them are getting above kind of union minimum. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. I mean, because Colin Farrell had literally been in like an Irish TV show, and I think he'd had a small part in like an, at a film in Ireland before yeah. this. Like, he was like, he was about as unknown as you can get. For sure. Um, though I remember there was a joke that uh, I remember in an interview, he kind of said, oh, yeah, there's like a when I was trying to make ends meet, I did like a photo shoot with like me and a thong and like a, a Santa hat. So that's going to pop up at some point. <laughs> but like and of course, like around this time, like Colin Farrell was basically famous for being like crazy fucking Irishman out drinking and like, you know, doing crazy shit. And he's kind of like we, we kind of have the post rehab Colin Farrell now. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad for his health, but uh, I miss I miss a little bit of craziness because I, I like to get a little crazy myself. So you know, I like to have a brothers in arms. Yeah. So for the next episode, we're gonna be watching a film that is uh, an adaptation of a Jean-Paul Sartre short story or short novel um, called Childhood of a Leader, which is the directorial debut of Brady Corbet. Can I, can Sometimes I just say something Brady quickly? Corbett, but it's Brady Corbet. Can I just say something quickly? Yes. Fuck Brady Corbet. Because, yeah, <laughs> fucking dude's like 27, making a fucking film, and like just hangs out in France all the time, has like a Norwegian filmmaking wife. Like, know. He, you know. he has the career that I want. He has like, yeah, he's just like, oh, fuck him. Yeah. And not only that, but his fucking first uh, directorial effort is an adaptation of a Jean-Paul Sartre story. Yeah. I mean, winning best director at Venice, you yeah, know, fuck. best debut. You know, fuck God you, Brady damn Corbet. It, Brady. God, I, hey Brady, can can we be friends, dude? Can he? Can he? Can he? Did he move to? <laughs> did he move to Europe? And and so yeah. said so he could be Brady Corbett anymore. He had to be Brady Corbet. Yeah, he's Brady Corbet. I, although I think he lives in New York now, which is the same thing. But whatever. He's basically. I mean, he's he's yeah. basically an expat. Yeah, but it's called Childhood of a Leader, and uh, yeah, so we'll be talking about that one next week. Cool. All right. In the meantime. Go to idigthismovie.com. Please like and subscribe us on iTunes. Check out kierseewit.com to see my shit. You will follow me on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. And Austin? Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. See you next week Peace. for Childhood of a Leader. Peace.